You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour-over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, GOLDENWEST. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today on the show, we have Christy Tacey. She's the owner and winemaker at Tessier Winery. Enjoy our conversation. Christy, welcome to the podcast. Hey, hi. Thank you. Well, it's great having you here. So I think the first thing to do before we get into all the wines and the brand and everything is let's just start with your background and, you know, before wine, uh, what was life like and how did you come to wine? Um, yeah, that's that's a good starting point. Um, I grew up in Michigan, and it wasn't part of my my culture really, um, like wine with dinner or anything, unfortunately. But uh, it was more of a a beer kind of family, I guess. Um, but then I uh, I went to school at the University of Michigan, and I got my degree in microbiology. And I started off my career then as a research scientist at the University of Michigan. Um, And I was in the gastroenterology department and we were studying um, protein pathways and um, gene expression. So I was working in a lab under a hood a lot of time doing uh, cell line work and, um, you know, with, with like bench chemistry, so using, you know, the shakers and centrifuges and all the cool lab stuff. That was my beginning. <laughs> yeah, and we can get into your brand and kind of how the the wine label actually shows a microscope a little bit, yeah. which I think is so cool. But first, I mean, you worked on the Human Genome Project, which I saw in your bio. Mm-hmm. Talk a little about that. I, I remember it, hearing about it many years ago, but what exactly you were doing and and how you got involved. Yeah, so I got the job with Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, and they started the Joint Genome Institute, which was out in Walnut Creek. And it was a high throughput sequencing facility um, as we were scrambling to sequence the human genome before this other private guy, Craig Venter, was doing it. So um, we were working on, like it kind of broke up. The Joint Genome Institute was like uh, one of like 12 sequencing facilities. 
and our focus was on chromosome 5, 6, and 19. And um, yeah, it, it, was, it was a really neat experience, historical. And um, I stayed there for, I think, like three or four years. Um, when George Bush came into power, like the focus shifted, like we were doing more educational stuff and like kind of filling in the, the evolutionary um, phylogeny. And, and I thought that was cool. But then it was like we needed to look at more sequencing war pathogens or biological um, organisms that could be used in warfare. And it like really freaked me out. So I ended up moving to the private sector and then I worked uh, at Solera Diagnostics and I was in the central nervous system department where we were working on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. And um, I, I was like the work that, that we were working on got published in a bunch of different magazines and science uh, journals. So it was, it was really cool. I was really proud of the work that I accomplished. Well, wow, it's really interesting. And then making the transition over to wine, I guess the good place to start is, were you a wine drinker during that time while you, while you weren't working professionally in wine? Um, and what was your first experience that kind of made you decide, wow, I really want to do make this a career? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a slow percolation, I guess. Um, my cousin lived out here, and when I first moved out, when I was like 21, 22, he took me wine tasting in Sonoma, and it just kind of all clicked into me because um, I was really into the natural sciences uh, when I was when I was studying at University of Michigan, and that's kind of like what led me to study science, just being out in nature. So like geology, botany. Um, you know, the climate and, um, you know, all those pieces together. So when I looked at Sonoma, you know, I was like, those vines here on this estate are making this wine that we're drinking now. Like, it just kind of blew my mind. And, um, but it was also like, makes you happy and like a very social thing. And that I really liked that as well. So from when he introduced it to me, I didn't have a lot of cash flow in the beginning, but then, um, but then I really got into Pinot Noir. That was like my favorite grape. And I started obsessing about it. And while I was at my lab job, I would, you know, research small producers, small winemakers that live locally. And I was just ask them a lot of questions and like, what do you think? Do you need any help? You know, and everybody's so small and they're like, no, you know, we don't need help. Don't quit your day job kind of stuff. <laughs> but um, I was just kind of, I just came to the point in my career that either I would have to go back to school to get my PhD to move up or do something different. And I, I just, I felt like I wanted the change and I wanted um, more hands-on uh, kind of work. So a job opened up in Oakland at an urban winery and I was living in Alameda. So it just kind of happened. So I was like, oh, well, I want to do it, you know, I, and I had heard this, um, NPR podcast about switching careers and that really struck me, even though you might make less money, but you could ultimately be happier. And so I was like, you know, I'm just going to go for it. And what year was that around? So that was in 2006 was my first harvest. So wow. this urban and... winery hired me for, um, operations manager and assistant winemaker. 
Wow. And so you were actually pretty early uh, to podcasts too, because 2006, um, you know, podcasts were kind of a thing and coming up and obviously NPR being kind of the leader there, not yeah. just, you know, public radio, but pioneering doing podcasts. So I think that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty interesting that yeah, you, uh, cool. you heard that on a podcast. So yeah, let's get into, to kind of that first job and your first working, your first harvest and, and all that. I mean, when you mentioned the scientific background and learning about Pinot, um, what came to my mind was when I started learning about the different clones. So, mm-hmm. you know, the Calera, Calera, Dijon, I don't know, I'm trying to, trying to think that, you know, all of them that come to mind for people and just right. kind of learning about the science piece and the biology that, that was pretty interesting when I first learned about that, clone, you know, kind of what clones so even were. Clones. Yeah. So maybe you could also talk a little about that of, you know, how you came to really research wine from a scientific standpoint too. Yeah, I, I definitely found that fascinating about Pinot Noir as well. It's, it mutates very easily, so all these clones can be slightly different with different flavor profiles, a different color. And um, I, I when I, okay, so let me start with when I um, started with Lost Canyon Winery. I really loved working with them, and they did about three different vineyard designated, and so we would keep all the clones separately because they would come in at different days so that was where i learned more about you know these different flavors of each of the different clones and then it's really neat blending them to see like how they all contribute um but lost canyon um they were run by um they some some like they had a school they had a special needs school that they were running and that was their day job but although they were they sold the school off and now they just had a foundation. So I was running the winery during the day while they were doing their day job. But these guys, um, we did all the work like side by side. So, you know, they just kind of taught me and we did it all together. And um, they were just so uh, reassuring and positive, which I hadn't really experienced in my science career. Um, you know, science is, is kind of like without emotion and just very direct and matter of fact and you know the data speaks for itself and also kind of critical like always looking like what did you do wrong kind of thing so that that was really nice too and i think that really um i don't know nourished me to to keep wanting to do this career and ask questions and 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 learn because they were just like really great teachers yeah, that must have sounds like a really positive experience. And then leading to go actually pursuing a degree uh, or f- further continuing education at UC Davis. Talk about that path and kind of how that came about. Um, yeah, so I wanted to, to know more and I felt like, oh, I should at least, you know, I already have a, a bachelor's degree in microbiology, so I should at least get a certificate in winemaking. And I, you know, I didn't want to move up to Davis or anything. So they had this like distant learning program that I ended up doing over five years, I think. It was kind of expensive and I didn't have that much time, you know, working a full-time job and, and then, um, and then working on this program, but it, it did give me the flexibility to do it. And it was helpful and pretty cool, but it was, you know, just kind of a more clinical side of, of winemaking. 
Uh, but it's all, it's good to know all of that stuff. And then I also did the certified specialist of wine through um, the SF Wine School too. So I thought that was important as well. And, um, and then I, I started uh, a couple different wine study groups because I was just obsessed and like there's so many wines out there and so many styles and and like how they're made and where they're from and you know there's just so many like tangents um so I had two groups going at once and like you know one was more um collaborative with with people that are buyers and restaurants and not that many winemaking people and then I had another one that was more production winemaking people because I feel like you think about them in different ways, but it was interesting to be in both groups to hear what both sides of the story had to say about the wines too. But um, yeah, that just kind of the certified specialist of wine just got me like super excited. And, and then, you know, just thinking and comparing different varietals, different winemakers, different places, you know? (laughs) Yeah. That's really interesting. As far as the two groups, uh, one kind of being professionals and then the other being, you know, wine drinkers to be able to see the differences. And it's always interesting how people approach wine, whether it's like you from kind of more of a scientific background or someone who's maybe a chef who's right. you know, used to working with food and looking at pairings. There's people come to wine through so many different avenues. So Right. And then buyers, too, that taste so many different wines all the time where, you know, being a winemaker, I'm mainly just tasting my wines all the time, trying to understand them. So it's like I want to taste more to to not get stuck in a box, you know. Yeah. And so going back here to your first job, coming from the scientific background, did you feel that it was easy for you to get up to speed on some of the things happening in the cellar as far as the inoculations and kind of the fermentation and a lot of those processes um, or where did you feel like you were already kind of up to speed and where did you need to fill in the gaps? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was pretty up to speed just being a microbiologist. Um, I, and I just thought it was all super cool. Like a fermentation is an exothermic reaction. It gives off heat naturally and carbon dioxide. I mean, it's just, it's so cool. Uh, I, I did um, take the class and I set up a lab for the winery in, you know, in their space. So that was kind of cool. So I learned, you know, how to do all the analytical tests. Um, what it was a whole different way of talking, thinking about um, gallons and liters. I mean, I still only think in liters, but you have to convert them all the time. And then just knowing like one ton of fruit equals roughly two barrels and two barrels is 50 cases and each barrel is 228 liters when you're dealing with burgundy it's just like you know getting all of that um structure in your brain and um then also when you do racking so then you take all the wine out of the barrels you need to make sure you have a big enough tank like and and also um doing all of the cleaning stuff and it's just so physical like i really I wasn't used to that, but I love getting saturated in whatever I'm into. So I was all about it. But you basically you feel like a janitor, <laughs> a janitor, you know, cleaning the tanks and steaming the barrels and washing the barrels and just lots of water all the time. 
<laughs> yeah, that's one thing when people work their first harvest, I think it's just all the cleaning that's involved yeah. and really the meticulous amount of, uh, you know, attention to detail as far as the cleaning and the washing and um, just keeping all surfaces clean and right. all the different chemicals that are used. So yeah. uh, let's transition to your brand and, and we're going to get into all these beautiful wines, but the actual name Tessier, I thought that was an interesting story of kind of just a cool story of how that name came to be or came about. Yeah, that's it's the original French version of my last name. So my family originates back from in the Loire Valley and then um, Tessier's moved to Quebec. And then they eventually came into Michigan when I think it got phonetically spelled T-A-C-E-Y rather than Tessier, Tacy, you know, I guess like that's. <laughs> that is happen. really that is really interesting. And Lower Valley, for people who don't know, um, Cab Franc. What are some of the other varietals that they're known for? Yeah, they do a lot of varietals: Cab Franc, uh, Chenin Blanc, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Gamay, um, Sauvignon Blanc. Um, I feel like I'm missing some, but yeah, quite quite a few. It's a pretty big region. Yeah, here in Los Angeles, there's a couple of Thai food restaurants that serve wine, and they um, often recommend pairing with Lore Valley type uh, wines. Shannon Blanc, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. you know, even all those chillable reds can go really well with that type of food. Yes, um, so sure. I thought that was a yeah interesting anecdote. So let's talk about the actual branding of your wine. Um, so I thought that was so cool how you were able to kind of have the, the microscope on there and I'll let you get into that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I was thinking about this concept of my, my label, um, I wanted it to be science's art, um, and being behind the scenes as a scientist, I saw so many cool images, microscopic images or, um, scans of, of different different gels or whatever it just like it, it always looked so cool that I was thinking like this could be an art piece you know you don't even need to know what it is but but it's still cool if you do know you know <laughs> so like on my my new label um, my first 10 years I had a round label and it was as if you're looking through a microscope and it had yeast cells on there very like analytical so after 10 years I met with a graphic designer and kind of talked about this concept again, science is art. And I looked through the science photo library images. And I just really um, like the image that's on the label. It's a sage leaf secreting oil. And um, so I bought the image to use for a couple years and had my graphic designer make it as a one piece label with, with more information on the side to a pick date um, pH, uh, how many barrels were made. So just to have more information about the wine. Yeah. And I think that's really cool too, because, you know, we can talk a little about differentiating your brand and, uh, and what you do, but with wine, there's sometimes there's just not a lot of information for the consumer. So right. granted some people, they don't care that much. They just, uh, you know, they just want to pop open a bottle and drink a great wine. 
um, maybe with dinner or, or just on its own. But then you, you know, I think feel like there's these levels where some people will look at alcohol content, which sometimes always isn't a great indicator, but sometimes right. can at least maybe lead you down the path of what type of style you like. Um, and then even going further, like you said, showing pick date and showing pH and showing some of these other things, I think is a cool differentiator. And then um, also talk a little about the music playlists and the inserts and some of the cool kind of branding things uh, that go along with the wine. Right. So I do um, music pairings for each of the wines and that's just I want to give people an experience, not to just have the wine, but then kind of give the personality that I think the wine is exhibiting. And when I was in college, I went to go see music, live music as much as possible. So I would go to Detroit all the time. And also like Ann Arbor had a a great scene too. And um, all the house parties I went to, there were always bands playing in the basement. And that was, that was definitely my focus. I didn't hang out with science friends. I hung out with a whole bunch of art friends. So I love like thinking about when the Velvet Underground um, was like kind of coming together with Andy Warhol. It's just kind of like two art forms merging together. So I just want to give people more of an experience with the wine. And, and I listen to tons of music all the time. So that's just kind of like how it happened I guess (laughs) yeah I think that's a really cool kind of differentiator and that extra little flair Uh, sometimes you know I know brands and companies are looking nowadays to give some type of differentiation there's canned wines that are coming out there's you know even whether it's I'm trying to think I mean there's a, a bunch of different different examples that you can kind of look at but I think that's a really cool touch to be able to kind of immerse yourself in the in the playlist and enjoy it with the wine because wine can be as you mentioned um it's something where you know you you're, you can enjoy it with food you enjoy it with friends or just enjoy it on your own but it's you know very sensory sometimes uh, you're experiencing uh you know other things that go along with the wine is how, how would you describe that <laughs> maybe that's a, a, a weird way of saying it what, what do you mean like as far as yeah like as far as um you know being able to have the wine exhibit a certain personality maybe yeah um i don't know i guess i'm personifying the wines right like Mm -hmm. (laughs) which which is really fun to me um i uh I don't know. I, I drink the wine and, and I'm always listening to music and I'm like, this wine kind of feels like the song, you know, maybe it's, it's like a really velvety wine or um, like the Santa Cruz mountain Pinot Noir, the 2018. I just paired it with um, the Mac Miller song with Ariana Grande. Um, my favorite part. So like, I feel like this, this Santa Cruz Pinot is just always kind of shy, but has a lot of layers and like it always gets a lot of awards so like you know she's not even aware of like how great she is she's just kind of like being herself and (laughs) i don't know it's just a weird thing that i do but i think like people enjoy it and it's it's just kind of fun just having more fun with with wine (laughs) yeah that's a great way of saying i think that's kind of what i was trying to convey on the tip of my tongue is like just making wine more fun and kind of having fun 
with the brand too, because wine is you know historically been so serious. Yeah. And you have kind of these point scores that we've had in the past, and I guess they still are around. You know, they they continue to kind of be around for for certain reasons. But I think people are looking for whether it's canned wine, whether it's like a song playlist, whether it's you know these other things. I think being able to take a more lighthearted approach and just have fun with it, I, th- I think it does make wine more enjoyable. So I think that's really cool. That's something people can look forward to when they purchase some wine. Yeah, Let's it talk also a little, can set a yeah. mood too. You know, like that's what I'm about. Yeah, so exactly. That, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Well, let's talk a little about kind of your style as far as both in the cellar and then even before the cellar in the vineyard, vineyard management and things like that. Sometimes you hear things like sustainable or, or you know, organically farmed or dry farmed. So there's a lot of different kind of words where some people sometimes it can get confusing there. So first, let's start kind of in the vineyard and um, kind of what your process and philosophy is there. Uh, so I always am working with sustainable at the bare minimum, um, sustainable growers. And that just means to me, uh, you know, how you treat the land, how you treat your people, and, um, you know, that, that you, you care. So that's, that's like the bare minimum. Then I, you know, I don't, I pay for hand hoeing and no Roundup being used. Um, and then some of my other vineyards, they all they all are kind of like tending towards organic, but they don't have the certificate uh, to be organic. It just you know requires more paperwork and money. And but um, Villagreen Farm actually is certified organic fruit, which is great. And um, they're also biodynamically farmed, which is kind of like the best to me you know it's just really like paying attention to the cycles of the moon and um using all what's within your system of the vineyard to you know to take care of itself it's a whole like Gaia system um but I I work with uh, a lot of my growers like year after year uh in El Dorado Ron Mansfield and his son Chuck I've been working with them since 2011, getting Grenache, and now I get so many different uh, grapes from them, but they're just quality people and quality fruit, and I love working with them. You know, I feel like they're extension of my family. It's just like this great wine community that I have. Um, like another one is the, the Riesling in um, Arroyo Seco, Zabala Vineyard, another family-owned place. Uh, beautiful Riesling vineyard, lots of boulders and rocks in there. Um, and then uh, Santa Cruz Mountains, Severia Vineyard. This is a private vineyard owned by Frank Severia, but farmed by Prudy Fox. Uh, she's a vineyard manager that's known as the Queen of Pinot Noir. She always like gives me the rundown on all the different clones and like what I want, you know, drive me around the property. And, you know, just every vineyard has a story and a feeling and a, you know, the soils are different, the weather's different, and I really want to capture that um, making wine. And, and that's with me doing less. So it's just really about the fruit. And I pick on the earlier side so I can use native yeasts. It will easily get through the fermentation. So I don't add any commercial yeast. And that's really helps give, give the true sense of terroir. 
Uh, I always do a little bit of whole cluster pretty much across the board. And that I feel like is another way to, you know, get more of the place in there. Um, and it, you know, it does a whole bunch of other things too, but like, that's, that's another reason that I like to do it. Um, and then I use mainly neutral French oak and stainless steel. Once in a while, I'll put a, a new, uh, French oak barrel on there, but always French oak and, um, no fining. So the wines I've applied for the vegan sticker as I don't, I'm not going to do any fining of the wines, which you can add um, milk and egg whites and um, isinglass, which is derived from fish bladders, to kind of clarify the wine to make it uh, clear. And um, that's just kind of a, a protein plus a negative interaction that, that it just settles and then you rack the wine off and the wine is then clear. I, I, I don't do any of that. And, um, and I love that the natural wine movement embraces this because I always love drinking wines from the tank and just like as pure as possible. Once you start trying to make this super polished product, I feel like you're losing things. You're losing the energy of the wine. So, um, and then as far as filtering, for the most part, rule of thumb, I, I don't do any filtering. They're unfined and unfiltered. But also being a minimal interventionist, I am a microbiologist, so I do always check what's growing in the wine and look at the lab numbers and kind of make the best decision I can for the wine. So I'm not just going to be stuck in the dogma of I'm a natural winemaker. I'm not going to do it no matter what. Like I want to honor the fruit and make the best wine possible. So that's how I am, you know, minimal interventionist, which is under the blanket of natural wine. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And you covered a lot of great stuff there. So a couple things there. Going to the picking decision, you mentioned you pick a little bit on the earlier side so you can add the or rely on the native yeast. Talk a little about that and kind of how you um, approach the picking decision and the kind of the uh, issues leading up to it. Oftentimes when I talk to winemakers, they say it is the most important decision they make. Yeah, it really is. It, um, so, you know, first you're going to taste the fruit and see what you think. And it's nice working with the wine, the same vineyards year after year. So I have all these notes and can think about, like, when did I really nail it? You know, like, what were the bricks? What were the pH? What's, you know, what date did we pick kind of thing? Um, so keeping it, picking it earlier uh, so the sugar is a little bit less, then the alcohol won't be as high. And... Um, using native yeasts, they're just a little bit more sensitive and they will kind of give you more problems if the alcohol is higher, the sugar's higher, it just kills them off quicker and it's harder for them to complete the fermentation. Uh, also, when you pick earlier, you have more acidity and I think more flavor profile. Um, rather than picking later, you have just more ripe notes where I like this kind of like just before right, there's just such an array of, of complexity. So that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking about. And, and then like you look at the weather, is it going to rain? What's the forecast the next, next couple days? And then like, then logistics, can I get a truck? Um, can they get pickers for that day? You know, there's just a lot of logistics that go into it. So I always try to stay 
flexible, but we usually can get it done within, you know, a two to three day window. Yeah, people may not realize all the logistics and, and things that are going into the winemaking process right kind of leading up to and as it happens and right after that picking decision. So the fruit oftentimes might get picked overnight and then it shows up and then that's when, you know, everyone kind of, you know, snaps into gear. Talk a little about the custom crush facility and just kind of your process of being a boutique winery um, and, and doing, making these low production, really high quality wines. Uh, yeah, so I'm at a, the production, the Custom Crush facility is Healdsburg Custom Crush, and it's um, owned and run by a woman, Stephanie, who's awesome, and that's pretty rare. And um, so it's it's nice to have people on the ground there, because I am only one person, and in the beginning, I did do everything myself and would have to like lure my friends into helping me all the time which, you know, they get tired of you and then they get flaky and like rightly so, right? Like they're volunteering and <laughs> it's hard work. So this was the only way to, to scale up was being at a custom crush facility. So I pay to use their equipment and pay to use their labor. And these, the people that, that are there are trained to work in the cellar and trained to, to know about wine and how to clean everything and get it set up. So it's great when I'm out, you know, getting the fruit from say Anderson Valley and I'm driving the truck back and they know that I'm coming because we're in touch and they have the equipment set up and then we can unload the fruit. I can make notes, take calls, you know, cause it's not like I just have one vineyard being picked. It's like eight vineyards within this short amount of time. It's kind of crazy and hectic. And then we will follow the protocols that I set in place, which is like, they, they know the protocols in advance, and, and then we um, start processing the fruit. But it's, it's just really helpful to have, like, a team. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And how many cases are you up to at this point? And then, and then converting that over to barrels, just so people can kind of get an idea. I know you were running through some of the winery math earlier. Yeah, I don't know it off the top of my head, but let's calculate. So I'm at 1,400 cases now. Oh, okay, okay. We don't have to calculate on the fly, but that's 56 a... 56 barrels. Okay, there you go. Well, yeah, so that... I definitely made a lot less. I only... It's going to be like 700 cases. Because of, you know, the pandemic, I was feeling really freaked out, was really tied on money, and like didn't know what was going to happen. I had a lot of inventory, so I cut way back. And then also the fires, I ended up losing one vineyard um, no. due to smoke taint. So it's just, that was, I don't even want to like think about 2020, you know? It's just, I did get some, some great fruit out of it, but like that was such a stressful year. And um, I'm really excited about 2021 and I'm going to be back up to 1400 cases and maybe grow a little bit more even. That's great. Yeah, it, it was such a rough year for everyone. So I know everyone is looking forward to kind of moving on. And I guess ev everyone in general with COVID and uh, kind of moving forward now. But let's talk a little about and get into these wines here. So, yeah. um, you know, I tasted through a handful of them and they were all awesome. As you mentioned, uh, being kind of a minimal intervention winemaker, I could really taste you know, the best way to put it, I think, is, is exactly how you said it, is when you're drinking a wine that's 
really overripe or um, can be a little higher alcohol. It, it really is more one dimensional and it just sometimes it can hit you over the head or, you know, you're getting that that really strong flavor. But when you have a wine that's, you know, maybe the grapes were picked a little bit earlier, maybe there's certain protocols in place in a certain style um, that this type that you're kind of striving for, you really get the spectrum of different flavors. Sometimes you'll get, you know, a spectrum from something a little more austere and, and you can taste kind of the green notes and then you'll, you can still get something that's, as you talked about, maybe uh, the grapes were just about to become ripe, but weren't overripe. Um, I think that's a really interesting, you know, way to put it in a style that can go well with food, but it can also go really well on its own. Is that a good way to kind of frame it for people who haven't tried um, this type of style before? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's get into first the Pinot. Um, so uh, let's see. Well, you, you feature a couple different Pinots here. So why don't you just talk about, um, you know, Pinot Noir in general and, and what you have available? Sure. Uh, I love Pinot Noir, and that was what I started off making in 2009, which is 200 cases of Russian River Valley Pinot Noir. And um, But the two that I have now are ones from Santa Cruz Mountains. I was mentioning earlier the Severi Vineyard, private vineyard, uh, farmed organically, although not certified, by Prudy Fox. It's a combination of clones. Uh, every year it's slightly different. And for 2018, I did a little bit of whole cluster, probably like 10%. And then I aged it in 50% one-time used new French oak. So no new French oak, but there's a little bit. You know, you use a oak barrel probably like four times before it becomes neutral and doesn't impart any flavor and just concentrates it. Um, this, I love the Santa, uh, the Santa Cruz Mountains. It's just always lots of pomegranate and hibiscus, um, rose petal, and then baking spices, and this kind of like alpine uh, fresh note. It is surrounded by trees. It's right on kind of in the coastal part of Coralitos, and um, one of my favorites. Then, by contrast, I also do an Anderson Valley uh, Pinot Noir. Uh, and it's from the filigree farm, so that all of the fruit is certified organic, biodynamically farmed. And the crazy thing about this vineyard is it is 74-year-old um, vines. So they're massive, like, St. George trunks of all pomard clones. So it's just one clone, which is a very earthy clone, clone four. And um, so really small amount every year that these vines put out. And... For the 2018, I think there's one new barrel maybe on it. I can't remember now. But it's a similar kind of style. Um, although, for the 2018, I did 100% whole cluster. So, like, the clusters were so beautiful, and I just really wanted to honor this fruit. So um, we just hand-sorted after the, everything was hand-picked and then um, just put into a, a container to, to, to get ready to ferment. And I just waited till it started fermenting and foot stomped it in the beginning. And, um, and it only made uh, two barrels. Yeah. So and this, special stuff. Yeah. And this was a really beautiful wine. Uh, I tried this one and um, reading the tasting notes here, people can look on the website. We're going to have links to each wine and you can buy the wine right from the website. But 
the notes of the uh, strawberry rhubarb, um, cherries, fresh lilac, and the uh, you mentioned the whole cluster. Uh-huh. Uh, I definitely tasted that, you know, in the wine being able to kind of give it a little more body. Uh, one winemaker talked about the whole cluster as being kind of a substitute for oak to kind of give it a little more body. Um, talk, a, you know, just briefly on what whole cluster is for people who may not know and then uh, kind of why it's used. So whole cluster is, um, so you're not, you're not taking the grapes off the stems. So that's what, that's what winemakers always refer to, the percentage of whole cluster. And, and the stems can give it herbaceous notes. It can also give it more structure and tannins. Um, it also does this thing that I am a big fan of. It's carbonic maceration. So the berries are still attached to the stem and like a mini fermentation happens right inside the berry and all these esters accumulate because they're not, it's not getting out, it's not volatilizing. So then you get this kind of tutti fruity bubblegum kind of flavor, which is kind of like high fruit notes which I love. So that's like another reason to do it. It just like kind of increases fresh freshness, but you know, it depends on the stems. It can give you more of a crunchy vibe, but um, it just, I think it's, it's really neat. And then also, you know, like I said, it gives it more of a sense of terroir because you're including more of the, you know, the grapes. Right. And next up is the Gamay Noir. Yeah. I love Gamay. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, Gamay is grown in Beaujolais. It's grown in the Loire and the Savoie, too. And um, it's just an easygoing, kind of fun, fruity, easy to drink uh, wine. It, you know, if I'm in a bad mood, like, I will always pop open a Gamay. Um, I live close by to Kermit Lynch, so I, I will go there frequently to, to get my fix. And um, I do this in, the, in similar ways, the Pinot Noir, um, some whole cluster, I guess like more increased amounts of the whole cluster depending on the year. And you get that kind of fruity note, but you also get this like feral kind of note um, that's just kind of wild and, and um, herbaceous. Like there's always uh, notes of coriander in, in this wine too, just kind of puzzling. Um, but super food friendly, easy going, easy to drink. The tannins are pretty soft. The acidity is like mid range, and um, yeah, I love Gamay. Yeah, and so Gamay. When I first saw this, I thought Gamay Noir. I haven't heard of that, so I had to look it up, and I didn't realize that that was the actual you know name similar to Pinot Noir. Um, you know. I was going to say, well, what's the insight there? It's not really an insight, but you actually put the name, the real name on on the bottle. Why do other uh, winemakers or kind of as a general rule, why is that not used more? I mean, you, you can do either or, like the government will accept both. Um, but I guess I was just letting you know that it's more because there is a Gamay Blanc that I just found out about. So I was like, well... I should put that on there, but I probably didn't need to. But I did it for like Grenache Noir too, because there's a Grenache Blanc and a Grenache Gris. So I just felt like I should just follow through and be consistent. 
<laughs> well, I think that's a nice touch to be consistent throughout your brand. And actually, you're you're teaching people something, I think. <laughs> they definitely taught me. Yeah. And then um, the Trousseau, though, the government wouldn't let me use Trousseau Noir. They could only use Trousseau, which I think isn't really cool either because there's a Trousseau Gris. So I would want to know that it's noir, but, you know, the government rejected my label, the, the TTB, the colas. So I had to fix it. So that one does just say true. So interesting for the wine. That is interesting. When you get into some of the legal issues and and wine obviously is so regulated. One time I was in a wine shop looking at a bottle of um, Philip Togni's wine, Togni, if I'm, I don't want to botch his name, but I I was looking for the alcohol content because that's something I sometimes do just to kind of, you know, feel out of wine. It's like we talked about earlier. It's not always the best way to, to do it, yeah, but at least in some ballpark, and I couldn't find the, you know, the ABV, and I was just looking everywhere, and I, I, I realized it wasn't there, and I quit, did a quick Google search, and he's actually grandfathered in where he doesn't have to put the alcohol content on his wine. I, I'm not sure if there are any other winemakers that wow. that have that, but yeah, so. Uh, interesting fact. No, it's it, it's it's he he makes wine up in uh, Napa. Weird. Yeah, oh, I never heard of that. So interesting, but yeah, let, let's move on. let's move on to the the Cab Franc. Now, this wine, um, you know, I enjoyed all of them, but this one really was something special for me, just as far as like the the playfulness and the kind of just the fun aspect. Um, it, it just had so much fruit, and it was ha- you know it had these kind of funky notes on the nose and it was just a really enjoyable wine. I enjoyed it with food and then I saved it and kind of drunk it uh, over the next few days um, kind of as an after dinner wine too. So it, it worked but like both ways. So let's, let's get into this one. Yeah. I do that the, the same, the same way too. Like I'll have a, a glass of food and then I'll like save the other half of the bottle for the next day because it totally changes the next day. And then you want to experience on its own. So I, I feel like your your research is good. Um, the Cab Franc comes from Russian River Valley, from the Alegria Vineyard, and um, this I I was just picking on the earlier side. I was kind of going for homage to Loire Valley, so um, having some herbaceous notes. But then with all the California sunshine, uh, we also get you know the right kind of fruity notes as well. And it's just, I think it's a nice balance. It reminds me of um, Cabron in France. So that makes me happy. Like, I'm always kind of looking to France for the answers. When I travel there, I always get inspired. And I'm like, oh, I want to make a wine like that, but with, like, my California grapes and situation. So that's, that's my goal. Yeah, and let's move on. As you mentioned, Russian River. I mean, that that wine does have a lot of fruit on it, um, and I could really taste, uh, you know, the the cranberries and the strawberries and kind of all the red fruits. So that's definitely one not to be missed for someone who definitely wants kind of a, even a little bit more fruit. Even as you mentioned, though, you picked kind of on the earlier side. Now right. the Femme Fatale Rosé. Um, this wine, you know, we talked about your labels, but there's just something about rosé. I know it, it's gotten popular in recent years, but you have it in the clear bottle and it just you have kind of the pink and, and the label here is just really cool and colorful. So uh, talk a little about that and then, yeah, and let's get into the wine here. Yeah, it's, it's um, 
It's named after the Velvet Underground song. So that was kind of my first music tribute. And every year it's it's different. For 2019, it's mainly Grenache from El Dorado with a little bit of Pinot Noir from the Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, but it's always done in a really light style with good acidity. Then the, the 2020 is the first time that I've ever done it like this. And like, you know, it was 2020 and, and why not? Like the, the femme fatale is just kind of always going to be changing, I think. Um, but this one is all from Villa Green Farm. From, they have a, the, this younger block of Pinot Noir, uh, probably like 10 years old, not, not the crazy old vine stuff. But this was like picked intentionally for uh, the rosé, and um, yeah, I just I think they're both very different, but but similarly minded. Yeah, and and this is a beautiful wine, especially now that we're kind of entering springtime and summer is coming up. Definitely uh, one that you're going to want to grab. Let's get into some of the other offerings you make: a Grenache, a Merved. Uh, Pinot Gris, uh, Skin Contact Chardonnay, which is interesting. Let's start with that one. <laughs> yeah, so that's a new release. And I this was an inspiration from my last trip to France in 2019. And I was tasting with a small producer in Beaujolais, and he did some Skin Contact Chardonnay. One of them was five days, the other one was 30 days. I really liked both of them. And I was like, I want to do that when I get back. And my grower from El Dorado had phoned me up and he was like, hey, I have some Chardonnay. Would you be interested in working with that? And I'm like, funny enough, I totally would. That's like, you read my mind. So uh, 2020 was the first time I got the Chardonnay and I wanted to do the five days, but I kind of pulled back just because of so much smoke in the air. And, you know, just you get you would get more of that smoke taint. Um being on the skins, you know, because you're kind of treating it more like a red wine. So I pulled it back to three and a half days, but I'm really happy with it. And like the, the skin contact kind of changes the pH. So it makes it more like a red wine pH. Um, so there's like less acidity than a normal white wine, but it's a white wine, if that makes sense at all. But uh, it's really cool. It's, it's kind of like a lot of pear and chamomile and, um, Kind of like star fruit. Uh, I'm I'm really excited about it. I also came out with a trousseau from San Benito, and um, that one I did 50% whole cluster, and I only made two barrels of it. But it's just really um, kind of strawberry and a little bit herbaceousness, like really fresh as well. And I also do riesling. Um, so I have the 2018 Riesling. That's really great. It's not sweet. It's super good with any food that you want to pair it with, from like spicy food to like a cheese plate to um, like Indian food. It can. It's just. It's just very versatile. And then the Soul Love just came live um, the beginning of March, and this is a blend. And we have a fresh new label for the for this one. It's a homage to David Bowie, and the label kind of is. 70s theme just representing that and um it's mainly riesling trousseau and mavet and it's a chillable red and it's in the family of blue glue which meaning you know it's just uncomplicated and you drink it down and just enjoy <laughs> yeah and you mentioned riesling i mean that's a wine as you mentioned that can be paired with 
so many different types of food and especially whether it's Thai food or Chinese or Indian, yeah. th that's always a great go-to and finding one that isn't overly sweet can sometimes be a challenge. So it, yeah, that's definitely one uh, not to be missed as well. Um, so yeah, all of these sound really great. We're going to link in the show notes here where people can just go to your website and buy either individual wines, buy, you know, pick out uh, different ones that they like. And you also have your club that's um, an option for people called the Research Club. Um, what is that and how can people get involved? Uh, yeah, you can just sign up on the website and um, it's three shipments a year, four bottles each time. You get a t-shirt, a super cool t-shirt. The new designs are out, really fresh. Um, a pin and with a microscope on it, it's really cute. And... Um, and yeah, just you get the since I make such small quantities, you know, you're gonna get every one of the ones that I make, and also like first crack at a lot of the small production new releases too. So it's a good way to to stay in touch, and you get a discount as well. Very cool. And people can go to the website and look at all the music pairings, which is really neat too. And you have a little Spotify kind of widget there on the website and, yeah. and play the songs which is really neat lastly oh, I, do a, I do a card like a wine card for each of the wines that come in the club too so it has like a cool picture and then on the back it has tasting notes and it has the song pairing on it too so right another another little kind of cool touch that people can look forward to yeah and lastly, just a fun question we like to do with guests at the end. Um, when you're not drinking wine, uh, you know, what do you reach for and what have you been, uh, you know, drinking lately? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. It's something to think about. You want to know what your winemaker drinks. They're just like, <laughs> soda all the time. You're like, oh, your wines like makes sense. But uh, my, my usual go-tos are kombucha. Um, I really like the guava, strawberry, cranberry flavors, and then sparkling water, Waterloo and La Croix. Um, and then I drink a lot of tea. So the, the ashwagandha tea is really great. It's like an Indian herb that kind of keeps you calm and deals with your anxiety. Any yogi tea um, I love as well. Very nice. And are you doing hot tea or iced or a mix of both? I usually do hot tea. And then I do do coffee in the morning for sure. Like. There's no way around it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, Christy, this has been really fun. As I mentioned, we're going to link this stuff in the show notes. Hopefully people can check out some wine. And as we talked about, it's really fun when you pair it with the music and maybe even join the club and check out those little cool little leaflets, little hand uh, uh, notes that you have. And, yeah. uh, you know, sit back, relax, and maybe revisit the podcast with the glass. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at Golden West Pod. 
or you can email us at goldenwestpodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.